Hello, you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is Tom McSweeney with the Maritime Ireland Radio Show, the monthly programme which brings you wide coverage of the Irish marine sector, such as the new issue on the Irish coastline, the Spatial Squeeze. There's a lot of stuff that we don't actually know, so you're kind of buying a pig in a poke. Basically, people are saying, oh, wind energy is great, and, and, and these days is polarized you're either one thing or the other there's no kind of level-headed look at what we actually need and where it's going to improve our lives indeed that's a big question ireland has given away a lot of its natural marine resources will big energy companies profit hugely in irish waters or will this time be different and will the government protect the rights of all those who work in the marine sphere that's Enda Keneally from the Irish Islands Marine Resource Organisation, who will be asking questions about the work of the Offshore Renewable Energy Group, set up by the Minister for Housing, Local Government and Heritage, Dara O'Brien. Is it trying to find a polite formula to tell fishermen that their days are over and to get out of the way of wind energy development? And we'll talk to a man who unloads ships working high above their cargoes, 50 metres into the air, in fact. You have to be constantly concentrating because there's just, there's a lot going on. You would say all you're doing is you're lifting a container, put it on the ship, or you're lifting it off the ship, put it in the key wall. But the precision required in doing that, also you're dealing with, you've got crew members, nearby so you don't want to be walking near them you've got people taking the twist locks off of the boxes when you reach the key wall you've got straddle carriers working behind you so you're constantly watching which he very much has to do that's david curran who drives one of the highest and biggest cranes in a european port and a wonder of the natural world is discovered on the west coast just what is it in the waters of County Clare that's attracting sharks from all over the world for courtship? The discovery of these tauruses, as we call them, these um, courting groups of basking sharks along the western seaboard of Ireland, is um, it's an incredible, but all the evidence is that um, they're, they're courting. So it's not just Listoon Varna which has matchmaking attractions in Clare, so does the country's coastal waters. Also on this edition of the Maritime Ireland Radio Show, a new feature, The Turning of the Tide, looking at the history and the heritage of the maritime sphere. And this month we're also launching a brand new website for the programme. The address is the same as before, maritimeirelandradioshow.ie. you like the bright new design by DigiNomad. There is no doubt that wind energy is going to be vital to Ireland. Our coastal waters are of prime importance and potentially rich in this resource. But what will be the impact of the building of wind farms at various coastal locations on other maritime users? 
Increasingly, the new mantra is concern about spatial squeeze, a term which describes increased pressure on the space in the maritime sphere for all those involved. The Seafood Offshore Renewable Energy Working Group has been set up by the Minister for Housing, Local Government and Heritage. Its purpose is to facilitate discussion on matters arising from the interaction of the seafood and offshore renewable energy industries, to promote and share best practice and to encourage liaison with other sectors in the marine environment. The group has held a number of meetings, but it seems that there are mounting difficulties in achieving agreement about those objectives. The Irish Islands Marine Resource Organisation is a member of the group, where its representative is Enda Keneally from Inishir in the Aran Islands, a former chef and restaurateur. The major problem we have is that there's no solid information available on the scale or location or details of any of the proposed offshore infrastructure that they're planning. So you don't really have any solid information. And uh, there's all sorts of things too that they need, like co-located industries, ashore, cables, associated onshore developments. You know, there's a lot of stuff that we don't actually know. So you're kind of buying a pig in a poke. Basically, people are saying, oh, wind energy is great. And, and, and everyone's off in a kind of a, the world these days is polarized. You're either one thing or the other. There's no kind of level-headed look at what we actually need and where it's going to improve our lives, you know. But in general, we're kind of, we're working in the dark now, the problem that we have as a small scale um, fishers, uh, most all our boats would be under uh, 12 metres, most would be around eight. We're a small scale um, operators and our boats would be spatially restricted. So we, if they put any of this infrastructure where we fish, well, we can't move on. So that's it. We're finished, you know. So it's not you don't have an option. So really, all these offshore renewable installations they should try and avoid areas within the twelve mile limit and on any particularly good fishing grounds. No, it's very difficult to say that because sometimes those fishing grounds move. But it's something that um, the fishing community have been there for a long, long time, and the coastal communities depend on it. And with um, this kind of sudden rush is rushing into things at sea is never good, you know. So one of the other things that kind of concerns us a fair bit is like that uh, this all seems to be going towards uh, private developers. Um, we would feel more comfortable if the state took ownership of the development of this offshore renewables. I mean, we did have oil, gas, we had a load of fish, they all left. Now the wind energy is here in our seas. So the government and the minister must step in and say, especially these days with these strategic energy security reasons with everything that we have, the offshore renewables must be prioritised and kept in state ownership really or else any private developers must be subject to review on short periods 
and they need to put financial bonds in place, you know, to deal with any problems. And we also need to have salvage and rescue capacity to, to commensurate with the offshore installations. You know, if one of these things starts drifting off and we don't have the capacity to capture it, I mean, we're in trouble. So there's a lot of things there. There's a particular point you make, of which I see mentioned quite often now, the spatial consideration, which is a, a term really for space, I suppose, and the space for fishermen and these um, energy uh, developments to, I suppose, cooperate. But is that going to happen? I know there's been a committee set up, the Offshore Renewable Group, but there seems a lot of lobbying going on, strong lobbying from the energy developers compared with those who might be affected on the other side who hadn't, who mightn't have the same strength in lobbying. Yeah, well, that seems to be the case at the offshore renewable energy group that's ongoing at the moment. It seems to be just to be trying to find a polite formula to tell the fishermen that their days are over and they need to get out of the way in a polite way from, from what I can see. It doesn't seem to have any any keep as such. It's, uh, this thing is um, the legislation allows for a maritime area consent based on two criteria. One is uh, sufficient can make it happen. And two, the technical ability. Now, if you have enough money you will have the technical ability because you can buy it. So this is all about the money for a private corporation. It's not protecting the stuff strategically for the state, which is a big problem with this going forward, as we see at the moment where we're going. You know. And the other thing I'm surprised at, but perhaps I shouldn't be, is that the new organisation, MARA, everything seems to be coming under the Department of Housing and local government with no maritime involvement and the Department of the Marine certainly seems to have no role at all. Yes, it's one of the things that we've been um, suggesting to government for a long time to various politicians and anyone that listens to us since Ireland is a, essentially a maritime nation and, and the resources that are around us that we should really have a dedicated agency with the expertise in this area to deal with it. Now, housing, you just look at the way we've built houses and floodplains and houses in the wrong areas and housing in general and how the fact that we don't have it. Uh, I mean, if they cannot do things on land, I wouldn't be too confident of their ability to do it at sea. So it seems to be that they're packaging this up to give to somebody and then we won't have anything. It'll be essentially we're talking of about 40 year leases on this thing. You're essentially privatizing huge sections of the ocean. And once they're in, I mean, there is a strong likelihood that this is its exclusive use of the area for these guys because a lot of uh, the, these especially the floating winds uh, wind operators operations and we're, we're it's in its infancy regardless of what people would tell you that this has been going on forever it hasn't and the west coast of Ireland is as you know is kind of unforgiving you know so um, no it wouldn't inspire confidence to be honest and I think that uh, where 
we would be coming from would be that, I mean, people are important and we need to look at where all this energy is going to go, um, what we need it for. And I suppose we need to have a look at um, cutting our cloth according to our measure, really. If we have a certain amount of energy, we shouldn't be uh, building things that require more since we're not able to do it. And um, there's a big problem with this as well. These things can't be built overnight. The planning and all the stuff can be given away overnight, but the actual infrastructure to happen is years away. So it's going to be a cold winter this year. And the Keneally from the Islands Marine Resource Organisation, IMRO, speaking from an Ishir in the Aran Islands, where he was a former chef and operated the Fisherman's Cottage Restaurant. And he's concerned about the islands and inshore fishermen and their future. Now the monthly news roundup. Tom O'Callaghan here with the monthly roundup of maritime news and a lovely story to start with this month. The Coast Guard has marked 200 years of its existence, going back all the way to 1822. So what better time to reflect on the history of this crucial rescue service that was originally formed as the Water Guard Preventative Boat Service. It was the sea-based arm of revenue enforcement against smugglers under the then British administration of Ireland. After Irish independence, there was political reluctance to continue to call it the Coast Guard, and it was renamed the Coast and Cliff Rescue Service. In 1991, that was changed to the Irish Marine Emergency Service, and in the year 2000, it became the Irish Coast Guard. Now let it be noted, that is written in two words, which is different to the British usage of one word that is still the practice at their Maritime and Coast Guard Agency. Over the decades, Coast Guard volunteers engaged in rescues have used horse-drawn carriages to carry equipment, climbed cliffs on ladders, fired rockets to rescue crews and passengers from vessels grounded on coastal rocks. Today it is a hybrid service of staff and volunteers with state-of-the-art technology, 44 units around the coast and four helicopter bases. The 200-year milestone was marked at Greenore Coast Guard Station in County Louth, where Minister for Transport Eamon Ryan and Minister of State with specific responsibility for the Coast Guard, Hildegard Nocton, presented special commemorative service medals to 950 volunteers. What more can be said? Well, lots more could be said, but well done for now. Well done to the Irish Coast Guard. Another branch of the State Maritime Services does not, however, have positive news this month the Navy continues to experience staffing difficulties. An entire class of five recruits who had been trained as ship's electricians known in the naval service as electrical artificers did work placement as part of their training with the multinational medical supply company Stryker in Cork. The company was so impressed with them that it offered all five permanent jobs in the company and would buy them out of the Navy at a reported cost of up to €30,000 each. Two have taken up this offer. The other three are in the process of leaving, according to latest information. Now there was what was more positive news from Cork though, 
when the port company formally opened its new container terminal at Ringeskiddy. It has been operating since April. This was the formal ceremony for the 89 million euros project that has 360 metres of quayside and 13 metres of depth for ships. Without a doubt, it's impressive. And the port company is intent on further development. It has begun a series of public information meetings for what the company chairman, Michael Walsh, says will be an exciting new chapter as a key gateway for global trade. The container terminal has two huge 50-metre-high ship-to-shore Liebherr cranes named after two legendary giants, Mahain and Binne, who lived in Cork Harbour, according to folklore. And after this news roundup, you'll be hearing just what it's like to drive one of those cranes from a man whose everyday work is done from that height. Turning to other ports and developments, at Rosslare in County Wexford and Foynes in Limerick. Rosslare Europort had the longest ever vessel to call to the port, the Finlines Group MV Finson, which has replaced the MV Finpulp on the Rosslare to Zeebrugge route. This is an indicator of the increasing importance of the Wexford port, according to Rosslare management, as it increases capacity direct to the continent. And over at Foynes, the chief executive of the Shannon Foynes Port Company, Pat Keating, is pleased that Board Planala has approved the Foynes-Limerick Road proposal, which, he says, is imperative that the road is prioritised, and that it is one of the key infrastructure elements that will assist in unlocking the Shannon Estuary's potential as a global renewable energy and logistics hub. Now there's a question about the next story. You see, the government has announced that the new Maritime Area Regulatory Authority, MARA, is to operate under the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage. And amongst its work, as stated in the government's announcement, will be granting licences for activities in the Maritime Area and ensuring robust compliance through enforcement measures. Well, the question is, why no role in a major aspect of the marine sector for the Department of the Marine? A campaign to appoint the chairperson and board members of MARA has begun. Another ship for Arklo shipping was launched in Holland. Named the Arklo Crest, it is the final new build of a 10-ship series for the Irish shipowners. It was launched at Ferris Smith's shipyard in Westerbrook. It has a carrying capacity of 5,000 dead weight tonnes. The newest merchant ship of the Irish flagged fleet is registered in Arklow and it's good to see another vessel registered in Ireland. Whitegate Oil Refinery in Cork Harbour, where big oil tankers can be seen regularly offloading their cargoes, could be set for new development. International energy company Irving Oil, which owns it, and the Simply Blue Group of Cork have signed a Memorandum of Understanding to explore potential development of an integrated renewable energy hub there. And the RNLI has opened its most westerly shop in Ireland on Inishmore in the Aran Islands. As well as a retail outlet, there is also a visitor experience. Located in the boat hall of the station, the experience goes through the history, featuring imagery and facts about the station's lifeboats, awards, rescue stories, and looks at the volunteers from the island who made up the life-saving crew over the years. And staying in the west, to conclude this month, Congratulations to transatlantic rower Damien Brown on his 3,500 nautical mile voyage from New York to Galway. He intended to row the whole way into Galway docks, but in the last few hours of his voyage, a Force 9 gale registering 44 knots 
with a heavy swell, forced him and his boat, Cush le Machree, onto the rocky beach at what was in those conditions a lee shore at Furbo, west of the city. Emergency services were mobilised and Gardaí helped bring him to safety without injury. The boat was also saved. That marked the end of a 16-week journey which began with his friend Fergus Farrell. Health concerns led to Fergus being airlifted from the vessel a few weeks later. Damien, a former rugby player with Leinster and Connacht, courageously decided to continue alone and spent 112 days at sea. Hundreds of Galwegians turned out for a welcome home that was held at Galway Docks. The voyage, called Project Empower, was a fundraiser for four charitable organisations. The National Rehabilitation Hospital Foundation, Ability West, the Animal Rescue Service Madra and the Galway Simon Community. Again, well done to Damien Brown on this historic maritime achievement. Well, that's that for this month's News Roundup on the Maritime Ireland radio show. Anton O'Callaghan reporting. The new 89 million euro container terminal at Ringeskiddy Deepwater Port in Cork Harbour has two of the biggest cranes in Europe. 50 metres high, impressive as they work ships at the 360 metre long quay. I looked up at the cranes with many, many steps up to the driver's cabs and came to a wrong conclusion when I spoke to the man with a challenging and unique job of driving those cranes. David Curran hails from Drina in West Cork, where he developed his love of engineering that eventually led him to be senior gantry driver at Rilliskiddy, driving the huge cranes from a great height above the quayside. David, the first impression I get looking at those cranes, they're hugely high. It's an extraordinary job to go to work every morning climbing that number of steps. It is, um, well, we are lucky. We have uh, elevators on the cranes to take us up, <laughs> but that wouldn't mean they'd always be working, so there can be a long climb up some mornings and they're not working. Like, in high winds, you can't use the, the elevators. You have to climb up, like, so you want to leave in time anyway to get to the top. They're extraordinary because they've changed the skyline of Cork, Port Cork Harbour, obviously. Being up there... In weather that's challenging, containers underneath you, it's a really challenging job. It can be at times, but we'll say when we start here, we're trained on the job and we're trained how to deal with it. And if things are looking like they are anyway dangerous, like we're trained to just stop. But there can be days when they be gusting and you think things are okay and you have an empty container and it can give you a, a fright now and again, all right, I might necessarily go where you want it to go. Like. And that's very important, David, because the, the placing of the containers, people, I think, don't often understand that the placing of them on the ship, the unloading of them, the sequential handling is essential. Oh, yes, like... Some of the ships that we come in, in here now would be dealing with other terminals and other places. So all the weights, they all have their own weights, but they all have their own specific places to go, according to the weights, but also according to ports. So we might be loading a hold, but every second box might be for different, different ports. So 
we would have to put them on in order, obviously according to weight, but according to port as well. If you put them in the wrong place, they can end up with a big ordeal afterwards because to get that one container, if it's put in the wrong place, they might have to unload 40 to get to the one if we don't load them in the right sequence. And getting them off also, you need to get them off in clear agreement arrangements with the guys on the ship? On the ship, yes. Well, I'm lucky I just drive the crane and there's people organising how the ship is discharged and stuff, so I follow my instruction from them, like, but obviously we'll say when you're driving long enough, you also have a fair idea on what would be safe and what is not safe, like, so, but we're lucky that all the plan is made out for us before we start the ship, so we just have to follow on and uh, go by what we're told, like, so it's grand. And how long have you been driving cranes? Um, I've been driving, I've been working here with 15 years and I got qualified in these specific type of cranes but the smaller ones in Tivoli um, within six months of starting here so I've been driving them on and off since. I also spent 10 years in Ringeskiddy Deepwaterport driving the um, Harbour Mobile cranes over there so I have a mixture of driving both styles of cranes the gantry and the Harbour Mobile. It's a fascinating job. What what, what took you into being a crane driver? Um, Well I used to drive tractors and machines all my life I always wanted to do it from when I was young um, my family my um, my mother's side of my family my uncles my grandfather they were big into machinery on a farm back home and they always done all their own work machinery and I just got interested that way and always wanted to be involved with machinery so um, I always worked with machinery and about 17 years ago I got a job um, as a digger driver on the boats so for the discharge of the bulk in Ring Skiddy, I got a job driving a track machine digger inside in the boat. So they lift, the crane would lift me up and put me into the boat and I'd work away all day and take me out in the evening. And just watching the cranes working, I wanted to drive them and they were hiring and I applied and I was lucky enough to get the job here and I've been here since and luckily got qualified in all the different types of cranes here and all the different equipment here and there's a great variety in the job you've different machines different cranes different products now i'm going to the containers now since this place opened i'm full-time on containers again and do you know it's a it's an interesting job but an enjoyable job at the same time and the description you have there of learning along by being inside in a, a bulk ship. That's also fascinating. I mean, they, these are hugely unusual jobs. Um, they, they, I, I guess they are, but we'll say for the people doing the jobs, they don't seem unusual. From people outside looking at them, they would seem, but we'll say when you start working at these type of jobs, it just becomes your normal. You don't um, consider them abnormal. Possibly didn't. When you talk to people, you explain what you do, you realise how out of the normal they are but um, when you're actually doing them you, do, you just think of it as your normal day you know, even though they w- it would be, for some people who would be in other jobs like it would be amazing to just think you're lift, lift this big 25 ton machine and put it into and you dig away all day down 16 metre holes with maybe 10,000 tonnes of product inside and you and your digger inside there moving the stuff for the crane to get it out Absolutely fascinating. I think people, when they see containers moving along the roads on the lorries, don't realise the jobs that go into actually offloading them, putting them on on ships, and the 
the demands there are in that. I mean, ships go through bad weather at times to come, and as you were explaining, bad weather can affect the terminal as well, and you have to stop sometimes and be very careful of wind movements. You do, and uh, the ships do go through some very hard times. I can remember a ship leaving Dublin. We were supposed to work in Tivoli on a Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. The ship left Dublin in time to reach Tivoli at 8 o'clock Sunday morning. It reached the point there at Wexford, turned along the southern coast, and it took it 24 hours to get from, from there to Cork because the wind was so hard, so it delayed everything. What I meant then is the knock-on effect for our terminal and every other terminal because instead of finishing that ship on the evening we didn't start it till Monday morning which meant the ship that was there Monday morning got delayed another day the ship that was there too and it's a knock on effect but that also happens in the other ports if a ship gets delayed like that it arrives late there and it delays everything and a small delay in one port can lead to a bigger delay in another port so it's massive what the weather can do to shipping The experience you've had David that you've allowed a outlined there from the bulk carriers right up. You must have seen huge technological technology development in the cabs of the cranes? Oh yes. The, um, the very first crane that I pr- learned to drive, we say, in the Ringeskiddy terminal in the deep water berth, like the cranes would be over 30 years old. And the difference between them to the latest new crane which they bought in 2013, which at the time was the biggest crane of its kind between Ireland and the UK, um, the difference in the cab is night and day. It's unbelievable, the technology um, between what, what people were doing and from what I saw in 2005 when I was first around the place to the size of the cranes now in, in 2022. And it's only getting bigger and better. The cranes here, the man and buena, as they've been named, um, the extras and the amount of uh, technology in these compared to the ones that are working in Tivoli with the past 20 to 25 years is vastly different and these cranes even though you still have to drive them and you still have to do the same job but with the technology in these cranes it does make it a small bit easier but at the end of the day you still have to control it and you still have to drive it. Sounds to me like a job where you need to be very fit for getting up on the cranes as we discussed, even with an elevator at times, and also highly concentrated throughout the work. Yes, you have to be constantly concentrating because there's just there's a lot going on. You would say all you're doing is you're lifting a container, put it on the ship, or you're lifting it off the ship, put it in the key wall. But the precision required in doing that, also you're dealing with, you've got crew members, nearby so you don't want to be working near them you've got people taking the twist locks off of the boxes when you reach the key wall you've got straddle carriers working behind you so you're constantly watching out for any obstacle or anything in the way because one false slip it's it's well damage of the machine but most importantly it's damage of life um you really have to be constantly watching for everything because you're up there, you can see it, so you just, if anything looks unsafe, you just have to stop because nothing is worth someone's life, so you constantly have to be looking around. Um, so it can, some, some days, a windy day now, or maybe the sun is shining strong, or a dark night now, um, like it can be very draining, but also very rewarding when you see the ship sailing, because the best ship that is the one that's gone away, because you're finished. You outlined it very well, David. Finally, you mentioned there both cranes have 
names. They were named by school children over in Crosshaven, not far from the terminal. And I gather there's a ballad, go, a ballad has been written about them. Yes, we had the ballad here a while ago. Um, it was sang, a worldwide premiere, we were told. <laughs> and uh, it was very, very good, very enjoyable. Um, it was named by the class in Crosshaven, and their names have actually been put on to the cranes now, the names of the cranes, but also the names of the children that named it. Um, so it'll be very nice for them for the future because they'll be on them as long as these cranes are operational. Them kids' names will be on this crane so they can tell their grandchildren or their children when that hopefully will still be working and they'll still be going at that time, you know. Two giant cranes and how they got their names from giants of old, brave and bold. Mahan and Binio, ring a ring a skiddy what for the diddle from fine power, don't hear a nicker boy, fear enough. Mahan and Binio, ring a ring a skiddy what for the diddle from fine power, don't hear a nicker boy, fear enough. Tis of the two giant cranes. How they got their names. Cock balladeer John Spillane composed the ballad about the two legendary joints. And listening there to David Curran, using a digger down in the holes of Bulcarius to dig out their cargo, is a powerful description of cargo work in a port. You're listening to the Maritime Ireland radio show about Ireland's maritime culture, history and tradition. Matchmaking is much associated with Clare, though not until now in the county's offshore waters, where basking sharks, those huge impressive denizens of the sea, are now protected under wild animal status in Irish waters by government decision, about which there was a lot of media reportage, which didn't explain why basking sharks have flocked to Irish waters. The Irish Basking Shark Group and the Marine Biological Association out of the University of Southampton have been investigating this for a number of years and have come up with the answer to what was a bit of a mystery. The Clare Coast is the place in the world where basking sharks preserve their species that is in serious decline. They come to Clare for courtship. The west coast of Ireland is the first place in the world where the annual reproductive behaviour of basking sharks has been seen. It's astonishing that this wonder of the natural world has remained hidden for so long, according to marine scientists, as Dr Simon Barrow of the Irish Basking Shark Group has been telling me. The discovery of these tauruses, as we call them, these um, courting groups of basking sharks, along the western seaboard of Ireland. is um, It's an incredible wildlife spectacle. And I think what we've shown now is that it is of global significance for an endangered shark species. Uh, I think the kind of things we've been witnessing where we've had these um, circling sharks um, quite close inshore, well, four out of the last, no, four out of the last six years, um, shows that the kind of thing you see on David Attenborough or on National Geographic actually is happening in Irish waters. We just weren't aware of it. 
So it's truly globally significant and amazing. Now, the Baskin shark, it's an amazing species anyway, but this has taken years of study, videoing, underwater pictures to discover. You've been at it for years. Well, we've been at Baskin shark research for a long time, and the trouble with Baskin sharks is they're so unpredictable and, and uh, ephemeral, so it's very hard to plan a kind of research project. So but in recent years, uh, between the UK and Ireland, we've been doing a lot more tagging, satellite tagging um, projects, which are fine for looking at uh, movements and, you know, connectivity between sites. Um, but this kind of uh, courtship behavior uh, became came as a great surprise. It was first filmed in 2016. Uh, Ken Sullivan from Sea uh, Fever Productions was actually making the program for RTE. And he was out looking for humpback whales off the Clare Coast and came across, um, uh, you know, this, this um, torus of sharks and filmed it. But we didn't really know what was going on. And then Nick Pfeiffer up in Inverin uh, captured the same behavior in the same year. But I suppose as, as, a, as a basket shark group, we only started discovering it two years later in 2018, where we were more methodical in our um, in that research, if you like. And really, Tom, it's the use of drones. Now we're using drones routinely. You see things that you would never have seen before. So, you know, can you imagine these sharks have probably been doing this for a long time? Um, but you can't see anything on the surface. So if you're passing in a boat, you go straight past them. But as soon as you look down above from a drone, they might only be one or two meters below the surface, and you see this amazing behavior. Colleagues of mine here in West Clare have been seeing sharks breaching in the autumn quite regularly over the last few years. But again, we didn't really know what was happening. And this breaching behavior is um, associated with these, these toruses as well. So. I think it really is a case of this has probably been happening for many years, but we didn't really realize what was happening. Now, for people to understand when you make reference there to Tarzan, that what, what we're seeing and what we've seen on the video which is available is sharks circling, going round each other, meeting up effectively for courtship reasons. Isn't that, isn't that what they're doing? Yeah, that's exactly what we think they're doing. I mean, we haven't actually shown mating as such, but all the all the evidence is that um, they're they're courting and and this kind of um, gathering of large number of sharks in an area for courtship. You know, it, it has been documented things like hammerhead, hammerhead sharks in the Pacific. So it is known from a few species of sharks. So um, and it, and I think what's been happening is. These um, aggregations of basking sharks have been happening probably offshore in deep, deeper water. Um, the only reports of these circling sharks prior to our study was off the north in the northwest Atlantic off America. But they were looking at some aircraft. They were 100 miles offshore doing uh, whale surveys, and they came across these uh, toruses of sharks. So no one ever accessed them before, but we've managed the last few years to film them, film them underwater, see what gender's there, the size of them, behavior, all that kind of stuff, which is important to try and understand what are the, what the function of these toruses. Um, so without actually seeing active moving, we've certainly seen um, all the pre-nuptials-like. Speed dating for sharks, my colleague David Sims called it, speed dating for sharks, which is, which is nice. And you're right that it seems that where they congregate is also linked to where they've been feeding. So when they feed on, on um, rich plankton, rich waters in the spring, it brings sharks together, possibly from all over the Atlantic. And then that is more likely to lead to this 
courtship behaviour. Because they're here anyway, none of the sharks are feeding that we've been watching, but instead they transition from feeding into this kind of this courting behaviour. Um, and for those Tom, that haven't seen it, you have to go online and have a look at the video we've taken. It's just unbelievable. We have to allow them their privacy, obviously. But the, the serious point to be made, Simon, this makes the waters of the West Coast where they have been gathering extremely important for a species that itself is under a degree of extinction threat. Globally, basking shark numbers are very low. Um, all the evidence suggests that you're talking to less than, well, thousands of sharks worldwide. The latest study suggested conservatively like 10,000 in the whole of the, of the North Atlantic. Um, so they are, um, they do seem to be quite low in numbers. And it does seem that, yes, the western seaboard of Ireland, um, and most of our work's been between Loophead and, and the Aran Islands, but there was reports of similar behaviour off Donegal, um, off Aran Moor, and a similar, I got a report of a similar gathering off Wexford as well. So it might be much wider spread. But you've got to remember, Tom, that in the scale of the Atlantic Ocean, Ireland is only a tiny little blip. Uh, but for some reason, you know, large numbers, thousands, if not a significant percentage of the entire world population um, is gathering in our coastal waters to court. So, yeah, it's a huge, um, huge privilege and a huge responsibility. So clearly, you know, we need to make sure that we can protect them from, um, from people disturbing this behavior. I think it's great that people experience it and see it, but, you know, without disturbing it. Um, and also there's implications for things like um, reprotected areas, um, special planning and also offshore removals. You know, there's plans for offshore wind from here off loop head and, you know, running cabling shore creates an, uh, an EMF uh, electromagnetic field around the cabling, which we know sharks are very sensitive to. So I think it just, again, means that um, our responsibility to um, sharks and other species is, is, is heightened. And we have to make sure that um, when we develop these offshore renewables, that they're done in a way that doesn't impact on this globally important um, site for basking sharks. The wonder of the natural world off the West Coast. Dr. Simon Berrow there of the Irish Basking Shark Group. And you can see the basking sharks off clear on the group's video on YouTube. He comes not far from Clare. He's a Limbrick man originally living in recent years in Kerry. And as we compiled this month's programme, he was well south of the Cape Verde's islands off the western coast of the African continent. That's Pat Lawless, Ireland's solo sailor in the non-stop Golden Globe around the world race. Sailing in a remarkably competitive fashion is Saltram Saga 36 Green Rebel, which has one of the lowest sail area to weight ratios of the fleet of 16 yachts, all of which are sailing with older technology, not the modern stuff. In the fifth week of the race since it started last month for France, Pat has been consistently in the top three, and that despite a knee injury, which he discussed with race officials on another boat as they monitored him passing Lanzarote, where he was very pleased when they told him he was third overall. Yeah, yeah. So how's your knee? How did it happen? Just wear and tear, I think, I don't know. Yeah. It happened a few years ago, and I forgot about it. Nothing like this now. 
Yeah. But I went to the doctor and he gave me exercises and that cleared it up. No drugs. Yeah, okay. But anyway, I spent okay. a lot of time on my knees coming out of the Bay of Biscay. Yeah. Yeah, what's the problem with the knees? There, there's fluid inside there in my knee and it's swollen up and it's an infection and I don't know exactly what caused it, but I think going around on the deck in my knees and the bad weather probably did cause it. And I started antibiotics this morning and hopefully they'll clear it. If they clear it, I'm fine. If they don't clear it, it's like having a toothache going around the world. So if you don't cure it, then it would be the same pain as a toothache. Wow. So it is sore, like it was very sore the first two days. Really sore. Yeah, but fine now, but I I, I took a, an antibiotic and a painkiller this morning. Yeah. So and I'm minding it, I am resting it, I'm a bit busy now, but I am minding it and it is getting better, but it has to clear the infection. Yeah. Other than that, I'm in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> I've started my painting. Can I get you my painting? Oh, let's see it. It's not finished. And it's the first one I did in about... Ooh, 1979 was the last one I remember doing. That's all right. Ah, when I finish it, it might be, but only mice. <laughs> but yeah, I passed the time. It's hard to paint when the ball keeps moving. Yeah, but now we have a nice weather. Let's see it, Pat. It won't make me famous. <laughs> but it passed the time. And it, I reckon it gets, gets my things off my mind. Do you used to paint a cow? When I was young, I painted. And I, 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 I was selling well. And I stopped and my mother gave out shit to me. I must say hello to my mother. Nancy, I forgot to ring her the day I was leaving. I love you, Mother. So sorry I didn't ring you, but yeah. Oh, you will be in trouble, Pat. Oh, I'm always in trouble later. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck, Pat. See you in Cape there. Take care, Pat. There you are, a good son with a message and apology to his mother as he passed Lanzarote in the past month. That interview is a good indication of Pat's attitude and determination. He's continued since to stay at the top of the fleet, so hopefully that knee problem has cleared up. We'll continue to track his progress. There's still about 23,000 nautical miles to go. Now our new feature, an exciting and interesting part of the programme, looking at the history and the heritage of the maritime sphere. Justin Marr presents The Turning of the Tide. You know, it's no coincidence that the Queen of England came to the English market when she came to Cork. There was lots of people saying, why the English market? My line in that was, why not? It's got the best food in probably the world. It's got so much skill behind the counter here, you know, generations of families who know how to prepare chickens, who know how to do meat, who know how to do fish. That's something that's actually very scarce all over the world now. Fishmonger Pat O'Connell is now known internationally because he showed Queen Elizabeth on a visit to Cork's English market on the 20th of May 2011 a monkfish and told her that, because of its rather ugly appearance, it's called the mother-in-law fish. It was described as a watershed moment when Queen Elizabeth II visited the city and a famous photograph of the pair sharing a laugh was shared across the globe. Pat O'Connell says that many people assumed the joke was shared about a monkfish, but was in reality about him comparing his nervousness at meeting the monarch to taking his wedding vows 30 years prior. Pat is a man deeply committed to the fishing industry, buying his fish for his colourful stall from the West Cork port of Castletown Bear. 
Three years ago, Tom interviewed him about his concern for the future of the fishing industry. And it's an indication of how little has changed for the industry from what he said then on our former programme, This Island Nation, to the situation that prevails now. We've always had a fish market in Cork. We've always had stalls. We've always had local produce. We've always encouraged people to shop locally. And, uh, and I think in a lot of places that's been lost, particularly in the bigger cities like Dublin. Um, because time has become of the essence rather than quality of food or you know making the effort to go, to go look for your food at the supermarket or whatever. And I think particularly in fish, I think there's been a bit of a race to the bottom over the last few years with regards to fish being sold in the bigger supermarkets. But you know, we've all seen it fresh mackerel or whatever and you read the packet and you see defrosted like or their ability to have fish when when there isn't a boat out in the country or because it is packed by some Irish producer somewhere it's become Irish fish all of a sudden purely by the labelling purely by the labelling and I think there's an awful lot of disingenuous carry on going on which is doing no favour to our industry you must remember that every fisherman that goes out to sea there's an inherent danger in what he's doing whether it's good weather or bad weather and I think they deserve better from the people who sell Irish product than that behaviour, I'd have to be honest about it, I think. We probably have the best fishing waters in the world. Unfortunately, we don't have control over them, and that would be a personal opinion, because I think in 1974, when the quotas were dished out, Ireland was in a very poor position to be working off the basis of a quota. And I think ever since we've seen a percentage decrease in our quota, but for me the baseline is all wrong. I think we should have a much bigger quota in our own waters than what we have. I think our politicians have been really weak on that because it's like they're afraid to stand up and say, this is wrong, guys, you know. French fleet having, what, 50% of the, the catch in Irish waters. I mean, how, many, how much catch have we in French waters? Our greatest natural resource should be promoted a lot more and, sh- and should be, you know, attracting a, a premium price and, uh, because it's a premium product. And there are countries all over the world that would get their IT to have our waters. And it's part of education. And it's not statistics, because I think BIM tend to go for statistics. They tend to be going for the sales figures and that. Whereas I'd be much interested that they'd be going for the quality. Because I think, you know, Green Island, incredible seas. We really should be exporting a premium product. We shouldn't be worried about price. We should be concentrating on this is the best in the world people have to be told the difference they have to understand that I can tell anybody down there this morning where that fish came from I can tell them the boat it came off I can tell them when it was landed why can I tell them that because my van was down to collect it it's not just the selling it's about the buying it's about the educating it's about the filleting in front of people you know people like you know I have people down there that are with me 20 odd years they know their stuff, they know their, their product, they know what they're selling, they know how to handle it, they know how to cut it up, they know when it's not good. And you know you can get a fresh fish that's not great. They spot that. It doesn't have to be where it's a stink of the high heaven, you know, like fish is a natural product, there can be some odd ones that are kind of for whatever reason not great. My guys are trained to spot that and to say, listen, sorry, I'll replace that, I'll give you another one. Because it's better to sort that out before it goes to the consumer rather than after the consumer. You have a great enthusiasm for the fishing industry, Pat. I had a very good teacher, Tom, my mother. <laughs> we go back quite a bit. I mean, you know, I suppose, yeah, but I mean, look, I'm in a market where local produce is king. Well, we've worked really, really hard on Cork's English market. I mean, I remember coming in here when I was a kid, and to me it was fine, but I mean, it had a reputation of being smelly, and, you know, we had thermic Adam floors, and the fish was dragged along the floor, and, and like, there was an awful lot of stuff that when you look back, you kind of say, Jesus, how did that happen back then? 
But you know, we have worked really, really hard in here to deliver local product at its very best. Your involvement with the fishing industry is very close because you're the retail end, the end where whatever is caught, as you say, in often difficult circumstances, is brought to the public. That's a crucial link in the industry. Is it properly understood even by the fishermen out at sea? No, I think there's a major disconnect between different sections of the, the fishing industry, which annoys me, I must admit. I get fishermen come up and they say, oh, Jesus, we're only getting two euro or two fifty for that or whatever. And I say, if you have time for a cup of coffee someday, I'll explain to you, you know, why there's an add-on in the sense that we have to send the van down to Castle Humber to pick it up. That doesn't come free. Like every other business in the city centre, we have massive overheads. You know, you sell away more volume of fish than, than we would. So there's obviously a change of price between a cod sold whole and fillet sold off a counter somewhere. And that's not the issue. The issue is that we all should all be singing from the same hymn sheet. Because the better your product is recognised the world over, the better price you get. You need to handle it properly, you need to grade it properly, you need to make sure it's iced, you need to do all that. And if your product is premium, you will get a premium price at the auctions. And it's all about education, but I do worry about the disconnect, I'll be honest about it. I do worry about that the fishermen tend to be isolated a bit. We saw recently with the penalty point situation, like where again they had to go to court to get... A realistic outcome. I mean, what other industry would tolerate being guilty until found innocent? I suppose is probably the best way to put it. And there is that poor relation attitude towards our fishing industry, which really, really annoys me. For years, we had ministers who were put in there who knew very, very little about fishing, but it was a ministry and it was votes, and and really, we've neglected our fishing industry so much that that does really. I know I may have to be honest about it. Pat O'Connell, fishmonger extraordinaire, at his fish stall in the English market in Cork. A man deeply committed to the fishing industry. Our next stop is both three and 300 million years ago. In 2019, the fossilised bones of a 325 million year old amphibian-like creature were discovered in County Clare. The 10 millimetre long bones came from a small amphibian that would have been an ancestor to the first lizards and lived during the Carboniferous period, which lasted from 360 to 299 million years ago. It would probably fit in the palm of your hand and is believed to have lived along a swampy coastline. The bones were discovered by Dr. Eamon Doyle, geologist for the Burren and Cliffs of Moa UNESCO Global Geopark and Clare County Council. First of all, they're vertebrates, so they are creatures that had backbones. And this is going back to, you know, slightly after the time when fishes were evolving to walk on land. So we're most familiar with creatures that walk on land now because we are one of them. There was a process happening around that time where the bones and the fin structures were changing to enable the fish to become essentially tetrapods walking on land. And it was a slow process and there was many different blind alleys, so things changed. Some didn't work out, some didn't survive. And at one point, the earlier tetrapods, where they were kind of transitioning between fish and tetrapods, had six, seven or eight toes. So that was a real possibility that you know, maybe if things had gone slightly differently, we'd be looking at our hands now with maybe six digits or seven digits. So when we look at these, uh, it adds a little bit more information to how, how evolution happens, basically. One of the big things is that we, we still don't know everything. So there's new things to be found in the rocks, and we will learn from those new things that we find. And in order to find things like that, we need to have geologists out doing fieldwork. 
So the Geological Survey of Ireland and Clare County Council fund my position here. So that gives me the time and the space to be able to go out and actually look and find stuff. And that feeds into research, it feeds into our understanding of the landscape and our appreciation of the landscape as well. So when people in the area know that there's new and exciting stuff there, they will understand and appreciate the landscape in a, in a whole new way. We're still learning, there's still new things there, it's worth looking and we're learning from that. And what we learn gives us more information about how climate changes and how Earth has evolved and will continue to evolve. Geologist Dr Eamon Doyle, showing just how much we can learn from discovering the past. History and Heritage in the Maritime Sphere, Justin Marr presenting our new monthly feature, The Turning of the Tide. And that ends the October edition of the Maritime Ireland Radio Show, the 10th in the series, broadcast on community radio stations around Ireland and on podcast services. Sound supervision by Justin Marr. You can contact the programme and I'd love to hear your maritime views and opinions on email maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. That's maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. And by phone and text to 0872 555 197. That's 0872 555 197. And our new website with news, comment, blog and our programme archive is at maritimeirelandradioshow.ie That's the website at maritimeirelandradioshow.ie We're also on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. From me, Tom McSweeney, until next month's programme, the usual wish of fair sailing. Thank you.